I am afraid that I have much news, and most of it is terrible. Welcome to the Mind Killer, the rationalist brain on politics. As always, I'm Wesley Fenza. I'm Inyash Brodsky. And I'm David. All right, David, who else do we have here with us today? Uh, mysterious guest. Who else is with us today? Hi, Stephen Kent here from Beltway Banthas. Hey there, Stephen. What's Beltway Banthas? Well, Beltway Banthas is the home for Star Wars and political talk in the podcasting world. Uh, It's a podcast I started around 2016 that looks at the politics of the Star Wars universe, both in-universe stuff, so kind of analyzing the way things work inside the galaxy, what makes the Senate tick, how does the Empire manage all of its stakes across the galaxy, And then I also do analysis of how Star Wars applies to our real-world news headlines of the day. Oh, did you just do an episode about Star Wars in Afghanistan then? I didn't, but I just wrote a book uh, that comes out in October. It's called How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. And in the book, I've written a pretty good deal about the war on terror. And with the war on terror, it's sort of flagship conflict in Afghanistan coming to a close as we are speaking on August 31st. Um, the subject has has definitely been on my mind. So if, would the war on terror not be uh, the war against the rebellion if we're drawing parallels? Well, the war on terror, I mean, I, Star Wars is all about, you know, from a certain point of view, wherever you stand, you can kind of assume the mantle of virtue, or you can assume the, assume the mantle of, of the good guy. And I think that's a big part of how Star Wars tries to approach morality. Um, but no, I, I don't think the war on terror <laughs> lines up with the war against the rebellion. Uh, oh. You could say that part of the tension... Go well, ahead. Well, if, if I remember right... Uh, the like at least part of the inspiration uh for the original um star wars was uh the mujahideen's fight against the um uh soviets uh including uh quite a lot of american funding and support given to them and their uh brave and noble uh leader of their freedom fighting coalition uh osama bin laden well, George uh, Lucas's sort of, you know, that? 1960s, 1970s style liberalism is is definitely made in um, the image of of exactly what you're describing, which is sort of viewing the United States, rightfully so, as the leading world power and the preeminent empire of the 20th and 21st century. So George Lucas does view uh, the United States that way, and he has numerous times talked about how Star Wars is supposed to kind of make you think about how your side of the equation could be the empire, you know? And and I think one of the the things that gets most frequently discussed is, right, like the Ewoks and, and, you know, how they engage against the empire. And he was talking a whole lot about how that, for him, connected to the Viet Cong and sort of people with more rudimentary weapons and, and tactics can still overcome empires. And he was, of course, talking about the United States. But, you know, I think the most the most 
current example of where you're supposed to sort of get an inkling of this sense of American imperialism was in Rogue One in the the scene in Jeddah when the Empire is rolling its tanks through these sort of dusty Middle Eastern-esque towns, uh, and then they are attacked by Saul Guerrero's partisans, Saul Guerrero's partisans with grenades and rockets. Um, it's, it's just sort of impossible to watch that scene play out and not see them as sort of uh, local uh, local insurgents, jihadists, whatever you want to call them, and look at the empire and go, well, if those are the jihadists and those are the people at the tank, then who are we in that care in that situation? And it's yeah. uh, it's the stormtroopers. Are we the baddies? Yeah, are we the bad guys? <laughs> well, that's interesting. I'm assuming that this must go into the extended universe quite a bit because you said you can like see yourself as being in the right on either side, but like. Is it, the, the Empire is basically space Nazis, right? Like, is it possible to see them as being the right side, just looking at the uh, the original trilogy and maybe even the prequel trilogy? Yeah, I think what you're talking about is what is morally correct versus what is is rational. Um, you know, it is obviously morally incorrect to be a Nazi in the 1940s. Uh, and think of yourself as the good guys here. But it is rational to be able to slide into the skin of people who live in that time, in that situation, who are just trying to survive themselves and make sure that their family don't end up in, you know, prisoner, uh, political prisoner camps that are just trying to go along to get along, right? And I think that's kind of a, an important distinction to make. Star Wars just released a book a couple of years ago called Lost Stars by Claudia Gray. It was sort of a Romeo and Juliet tale of an imperial woman who witnessed the destruction of the first Death Star and it radicalized her in support of the empire, whereas the man she falls in love with was radicalized by the destruction of Alderaan and falls in with the rebellion. Uh, Star Wars is is very happy to dive into these sort of moralistic situations where you have to accept that based on people's individual experiences, they're going to see their their actions in a different moral light than you might from your perspective. Right, so okay, so, so that's all. Oh, that's cool, all well go and good, but um, I, I see an opportunity to um, to talk about uh, the one of the questions I find really interesting in Star Wars. Um, so the way your book is structured is you uh, have a chapter on these virtues that um, that uh, Star Wars teaches. And uh, one of these virtues that you selected for this book is balance. And mm -hmm. I always thought that balance was kind of a weird thing to optimize for in a universe where this vast cosmic energy, the force, literally has a light side and a dark side. And mm -hmm. the, uh, the people on the light side have um, uh, weapons with cool colors and light-colored clothing and... Uh, speak in very uh, peaceful, mild-mannered ways, and the people on the dark side have red weapons and dark clothing and cackle and blow up planets like it was going out of style. So, mm -hmm. it, so, and I know that George Lucas has been, this is a very lukewarm take at this point, and George Lucas has said, like, no, the light side winning is actually the real balance in the Force. But I'm curious, why, as someone who's thought about this a lot, why is balance in the Force something that 
is like good to pursue. It just seems like it's kind of saying, no, you should you should compromise with the horrific genocidal monsters. Yeah, so why is so that wrong? I think it's I think it's important to segment off the Jedi and the Sith from the light and the dark side of the force. The Jedi are not huh. the light. The Sith are not the dark. Um, these are religious cults who practice one particular side of the force and do so in a way that conveniences them and allows them to coexist or to exist in the galaxy with the most power possible. Um, the Jedi, I think you, you should you should look at them, right? And you should look at what they say that they believe. And you should look at what they say they, they believe in terms of the force. So the light side, that is peace, that is compassion, it is calm, it is detachment. The dark mm -hmm. side is emotion, um, it is hunger, it is a, a desire for more, it is a desire for control. There is nothing wrong with emotion. There's nothing wrong with wanting control over certain things. Um, but when you take these things to certain extremes, I mean, that's how you end up being a cackling villain. That's how you end up becoming Darth Vader trapped inside an Iron Maiden for the duration of your life when you live on those extremes of those two things. Um, the thing that makes the, 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 the situation tricky, particularly for the galaxy, is like, yeah, you don't want the Sith to have a say in galactic affairs, right? The Sith are agents of imbalance. All they do is hunger and want more. And so it's absolutely, I think, understandable for the Jedi to go, well, the Sith should be relegated to nothingness across the galaxy because if you give them an inch, boy howdy, they will take a mile. But that doesn't mean that you can or should eliminate the presence of the dark side from the galaxy that creates imbalance and imbalance only swings back harder when the pendulum eventually comes back. So that is, so that's, uh, um, like in terms of the fictional cosmology of star Wars, that very well may be true, but like, I'm not sure I entirely buy it. Like, um, I mean, given the way the country has gone recently, it's uh, well. We got to we got to um, we got to segment what we're talking about. Are we talking about Star Wars? Are we talking about the country? Because I wasn't talking about the country. So okay, so if if that's a discussion we're having, then uh, I I like you're the one who wrote the book on how the lessons of balance that we can take from Star Wars can as you put it, fix the world. So Yes, I, I did write that book and those are applicable lessons, but we're talking about one thing at a time. So if okay. you want to apply the lessons, we'll talk <laughs> then we have to make that connection and, and do that bridging first. But I'm talking about Star Wars right now. So are okay. you wanting to now talk about how to apply it? Um Yeah, sure. Let's go for that. All right. Tell me what's on your mind. Uh so um the so about the whole, like, if you try to stamp out the darkness, it'll come back stronger than ever. Like, I, I'm not sure that's true. Like, in in 1945, we beat Nazism so hard that, like, I, I'm not entirely convinced it'll come back stronger than ever. It's um, unfortunately come back in some form, but 
stronger than ever seems like a unsupportable claim at this point. Hmm. I'm not sure there is a, a good case to be made that Nazism was defeated in the 1940s. The Germans were defeated. Nazism and the the founding beliefs of that ideology exist. They continue to exist. We've seen major upticks throughout the 1990s, a dip in the early 2000s, and then a resurgence in the 2010s through now in terms of the prevalence of white supremacy, of Nazi ideology, and the growth of Nazi gangs throughout the Western world, looking at Europe and the United States. I mean, my God, you had in the 1950s, you had neo-Nazis filling out entire amphitheaters in New York for their rallies. Like, you can't just like stamp out these ideas in a war and call it done. Sure, but like um, your claim was, if you try, then they'll come back stronger. And Nazism has come back since it was or since Nazi Germany was defeated militarily, and you're quite right, we should distinguish between Nazism and Nazi Germany. Uh, but saying it's come back stronger is like it it hasn't yet. And if you compare it to say socialism, which uh, I am I being the token grouchy anarcho capitalist would say is. Uh, as bad, if not worse, than Nazism. Although, of course, people use that word to mean different things, and some of the things they use it to refer to aren't that bad. Uh, but, uh, like, socialism was never defeated militarily. No, Our socialist countries weren't. Um, certainly not the core of socialist ideology in uh, the USSR and China. And if you look at like the relative strength of socialism versus nazism like at the very least like people on the right are completely rightly embarrassed that there are nazis who are ostensibly on the same side as them whereas people on the left seem much more comfortable sharing a tent with socialists despite the uh body count per year that they were in control of uh, countries being pretty much commensurable between the two. I want to give your co-host an opportunity to get in here if they want. <laughs> oh. Well, I think maybe what strikes me as maybe um, not quite apt about this is um, conflating the dark side of the force with Nazism. Yeah, I'm, I'm confused with, as, how, as to how socialism. we got here as well. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, I, I think the the naive view is just like, oh, well, that's evil. And, and that's, the, you know, the closest thing to like a pure evil ideology we have on this earth. That that was more or less um, where my head was at. Yeah. But I think the dark side of the force is not an ideology. It's not it's not the the cult that he was speaking about earlier. It is a a it is an, an energy that exists. Um. And I'm I'm trying to think of something you could compare that to in our world. Uh, I don't think it's any particular political philosophy. Um, well, it's I think passion. You, it's the pursuit of control. Right. I think I think trying to to defeat the dark side is more similar to like trying to defeat jealousy. Hmm. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's not a thing that can be defeated. Um, right. So, David, I take your point that um, you know socialism, Nazism 
a lot of terrible ideologies have been defeated and they don't necessarily come back stronger. But um, I, I would I would relate it more to something like um, societies with a lot of sexual repression. Hmm. It's this sort of if you try to um, tame or stamp out or defeat this this just a a force that exists in in nature and in humanity, um, then it will come back stronger. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the, the elements of like socialism and fascism that are just sort of innate to the human condition, and, and obviously, fascism, I think, I think has a lot of different different planks. But if I were going to boil it down to one, like socialism, I think is is tied to the human condition of envy. I think that fascism is tied to the human nature of wanting security above all else. I think if you take those two things to those extremes, you're always going to end up in some sort of cousin-related ideology to those two things. You can stamp out communists all you want. You can stamp out fascism and Nazism, but you're not going to get rid of the desire for people to govern society in a way that builds on one of those two things, desire for more security or the desire to take things that belong to other people. Um, Mm. You know, when I'm, I'm talking in my book about pursuing balance uh, through star Wars and then trying to apply that to the world that we live in, it has a whole lot to do with the desire for more control and shaping the world in which you want, in the way that you would like to see it. Um, What I talk about in the book is the Flight 93 idea where Trump supporters, um, it was an essay that came out in the Claremont Review of Books in the run-up to the election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, and the election was described as a Flight 93 election, where we had really only one more chance as a country to storm the cockpit and seize the controls. Otherwise, we were going to be in an existential crisis for the future of the country. Um, this is sort yeah, of. As the, I recall, the idea is that you know it might not work at all. We might be doomed, but this is our last chance. So we got to give it everything we've got, even if that means you know our whole lives. Yeah, it was, quote, 2016 is the Flight 93 election. Charge the cockpit or die (laughs) was one of those main passages. It was very dramatic. And once you start drinking from that well, um, you are basically crossing into a world of no return where politics is not worth engaging in anymore because we are in existential crisis. And so you've basically got to um, go for the full the full bore way of dominating your opponents. Um, and what I like in this too very much uh, is the, the 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 Death Star, right? the the very the very essence of control and dominating your opponents is the planet killing weapon put together by the Empire called the Death Star, orchestrated around the idea of the Tarkin Doctrine, ruling the galaxy through fear. But my primary thesis is that you can't rule the galaxy through fear, particularly in Star Wars. And you can't do it in the world here today because when you put people up against the wall, when you put their backs up against the wall, you're going to give them the the fight to survive, right? 
The Death Star rallied the rebellion. It gave birth to a unified rebellion when they were previously fractured and made them more dangerous than ever. When you actually start getting into this Flight 93 mindset about politics and squashing your opponents because politics isn't working anymore, you're going to intensify the unity on the other side of the fight. You're going to intensify the stakes on both sides, and things are going to get a lot more intense. Do you think at this point things are still getting more intense and more unified on both sides, or are people backing away from the must-dominate-the-other-side because this is an existential crisis mode? I think we are inching closer and closer to dominating the other side because we're in an existential crisis mode. Um, I think a couple of different flashpoints exist in this in this going on. I think it's the the 2016 election. I think it is... Um, the incident on January 6th is going to radicalize much of the the mainstream sort of corporate left in this country who are the same types of people who happily endorsed the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and the war on terror, which turned the government against our own people at a certain point and are going to use events like January 6th to keep, keep bringing up the stakes. Um, the only thing that, of course, can turn down the temperature in a situation like this is the the novel idea of states' rights, of federalism, where we're letting California be California, let New York be New York, and let Texas be Texas, and we stop trying to make Texas be like New York <laughs> and vice versa. Like it's It's stunning to me that when Texas passes an abortion restriction, that the entire country has to debate it. Like- I guess I'm just sort of one of those like focus on your own community kind of people where I'm like, yeah, if Texas is going to pass this law, it reflects the will of Texans um, and we should back off. Uh, but we don't have that kind of country. We don't have that kind of news media or politics. And I think it's going to come to a head. I just I just don't know how. I think federalism, I feel, always sounds very good in theory. And the devil's always in the details because there's always some point at which you say, okay, we can't let them do that. Um, and and it, it always comes down to so that is the what bill you of would rights. call civil rights. Well, yeah, the, sure. so that is the bill of rights. And frankly, we have sorted that out. We, we have sorted well, that out. No, we've, we've overcome like the major hump in this country well, of well, having uh, federalism be an ideology of the Bill of Rights being a selective thing based on which state you're in. Well, so hang on. The, well, sure, but you brought up I, abortion, I and that's well, based. I mean, the yeah, I, I mean, so abortion no, not. Abortion's one thing, but Article Two of the Bill of Rights is the right to keep and bear arms. And like, I'm a big gun guy. I know that my hosts aren't, but like, if we're going to have an argument saying like. Uh, we need federalism and the solution to the there are some things you just don't let the other side do problem is the Bill of Rights. Well, then, I mean, we're just right back to the old equilibrium because California or New York's going to pass an assault weapons ban or something like that. And then, well, there's the, there's the oh, well, we need to stick by the Bill of Rights principle gone out the window. Yeah, I didn't say anybody liked it. I said that's what we should do. Uh, well, the that's problem fair, is that and I, like ab- I respect the hell out of you biting that bullet. The th- things like abortion and um, and and gun rights, they are based in the Bill of Rights. 
um, uh, Roe versus Wade remember. was decided on constitutional grounds. Okay, sure. Um, so, like I said, it's always in the details. You you can say, um, you know, the Bill of Rights is the final backstop, but then you just you just end up fighting then about what the Bill of Rights is, and uh, yeah, you know, your, your arguments become of, uh, soldiers. Yeah, and I'm reminded of uh, David Friedman's argument in uh, legal systems very different from ours that the United States is fundamentally a uh, our legal system is fundamentally an example of religious law because under religious law codes, what's interesting about them is the text is fixed. And so you need to have all these silly debates about interpretation and uh and America is the same way uh, with respect to the Constitution as, say, um, Sharia law is with respect to the text of the Quran. I didn't have a deeper uh, point to make. I just thought that was amusing. <laughs> but I, I actually agree that that federalism is um, or, or some way of respecting individual rights and letting individuals make decisions rather than the collective making decisions for everybody. I think that's got to be, you know if if tensions are ever going to be lowered in the country that's how it's going to happen i just don't know how to do that right and, and one of the one function. of the things that i think is incredibly uh detrimental in escalating the tension is that whenever we find ourselves at these crossroads on on key issues and i think we've pretty much identified one of the two really big boiling roiling issues in our politics which is abortion and guns uh, mean a lot of different things to different people. Both factions began either hustling to change the rules of politics or to call in the referees at every turn. And in the, in, of course, by the referees, I'm talking about the courts. So in the Star Wars prequels, you have a little bit of a similar governance problem that arose just because of the, the sheer size of the Galactic Republic. You had thousands of star systems. None of them were equipped with a military to enforce the law or maintain peace. And the Jedi Order in that situation basically then take on the role of being galactic diplomats. They would get dispatched by the Republic all across the galaxy to settle small local disputes and like broker peace agreements and stuff. Um, but over the course of a millennium, this made the Jedi both deeply loved in some corners of the galaxy and deeply hated. And that was a vulnerability that a certain Palpatine was actually then able to exploit to try to bring about their demise. One of the things that I'm incredibly concerned about in, in referencing again the referees is how you sort of have the Jedi being like the people who get called on to settle gal galactic disputes, whether people like it or not. They're unelected. Uh, they're, they come from a, a strange part of the galaxy with an aloof point of view about everything. Nobody asked them to do anything, but they still show up and they change the, the rules and the laws of different people's lands. Well, they also and talk a big game about peace, but carry you know laser weapons. Right, right. And I, I think one of the big problems that we face right now is the Supreme Court being put in the same position. Um, you know, Democrats spent the better part of the Trump years casting themselves as guardians of democratic norms and champions of democracy. But they would also then say their Republican counterparts were standing in as totalitarians while they were the ones making the arguments the entire time for dissolving 
pieces of or dissolving the legislative filibuster, packing the Supreme Court, and even at the fringes in the New York Times, you could read this stuff advocating for the dissolution of the U.S. Senate because of its racist roots, whether or not you accept that argument. Like the left doesn't necessarily care for some of these structures uh, and branches of government that we have to protect due process and rule of law just like the right doesn't. Everybody just wants to change the rules when it's convenient for them. Yeah. I, got, I, I would oh, go quibble ahead, with a few of those examples, but I, I agree in principle. I got and, a uh, question I about- would like to take this opportunity to remind you that even though you can read about that in the New, in the New York Times, you shouldn't because the New York Times is bad and you shouldn't give them money. <laughs> uh, for right. those of us, uh, for those of you who are joining us from uh, Beltway Banthas, uh, we, uh, the mind killers don't are care for the times. part of a, uh, part of a subculture you may or may not have heard of, uh, the rationalists and one of, uh, the big bloggers in our space was doxxed by the New York times for clicks. And we are still upset about it. I heard. <laughs> yeah. So if, if SCOTUS is acting like the Jedi's and that's bad and both sides are getting more and more radicalized what lesson can we take from star wars to de-escalate this and make things calmer so one of the things that i i wonder about that that framing even is it is it that the the scotus are sort of acting like the jedi order or is it that they are being cast in the exact same way sort of as palpatine was able to cast the jedi as the boogeymen of the galaxy during the time of the clone wars um if they were able, if he was able to then turn the public against those people, like one of my concerns is that the 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 Supreme Court is not doing anything but their job. They they do exactly what they're supposed to do. You 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 analyze the law. People send you lawsuits. You accept or reject those suits, and then you bring the cases before them. But the political parties are completely invested in making them the bad guys of the republic, no matter which way they rule. There is no respect for the court's decision or rule of law based on you know some sort of reverence to the system. It's entirely based on political goals. So, you know, one of the things that that in my book I sort of con- consistently run up against is that I believe the force and the ideas of Star Wars and using it as a framework to look at the world could make the world a better place. But I don't necessarily believe that people are capable <laughs> of doing it. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't believe that people are actually you know, in their bones, like capable of putting aside their political interests and their their perceived self-interests or modes of self-preservation to try to uphold certain systems or rule of law. Like we all are only bought in to American democracy or whatever system that we're bought into based on what it is doing for us at any given time. And I think most people are inclined to throw the rules and the systems out the window when it's not convenient for them anymore. So um, if things... Oh, go ahead. So I actually, I think the um, the comparison of the Jedi with the Supreme Court is uh, it's pretty apt based on what you said earlier about the Jedi kind of being the only functional unit in the Republic. That's able to to really take action, um, and I think the reason that the Supreme Court has been cast as uh, you know either the the last great hope or the 
the evil monsters doing everything um, is because the other branches of government are broken and ineffective. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So in the same way that the Jedi, you know, are the the only ones who can go to Naboo and negotiate a trade deal for some reason. They don't have, you know, a functional um, ambassador that can do that. Um, the Supreme Court's put in the same position where there's things that need to happen. Everyone knows they need to happen, but nobody can do it but the court. Yeah. They're the only people who have like a very, very clear set of responsibilities and insulation from public pressures. And (laughs) I'm very invested in preserving uh, that insulation as much as possible. If anybody ever writes some sort of blog about why there needs to be uh, cameras in the Supreme Court so we can see the proceedings, I'm going to try and get that person banned from the internet. It's just such a bad take. So what I'm hearing is that you are in favor of cancel culture. Good to know. Um, yeah, I'm a totalitarian. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, I, I, I think that the court is uh, not so insulated from public pressure. Um or at least partisan politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's uh, a nice dream, but I don't know if I agree that it, it reflects reality. They're, they're about as insulated as you can be for a branch of government. I'm not saying they are completely insulated, but as far as the the pressures that you would feel in Congress, as you would feel in the White House, um, the Supreme Court still has a pretty darn cushy situation um, in terms of, of of trying to to pass their will as you would see fit. Sure, yeah, I th- and I actually think the best way to go about insulating them from further pressure is to restore some functioning to the other branches. You know, if they weren't responsible for everything, um, then that's I think correct. Yeah, yeah, we would uh, we would they wouldn't be this pressure on them. And that's that's part of that's part of the imbalance. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I look at is how how it got to be that the Supreme Court has sort of become the boogeyman of American politics and, and you know, a scapegoat for Democrats and Republicans anytime they need to send out a mailer for election season. Um, that is because, and precisely because Congress does not do anything, they just sort of leech off of the existence of the other branches and try to share in power as much as possible. Um, Congress and the the amazing lack of things that they do is what has gotten things to be so out of control between the judiciary and the executive. Um, yeah, I agree. With nothing that. nothing happens and nothing gets back in balance until something changes involving Congress. Uh, what those things are, I don't know. That well, is for, I, that is for I, someone I happen, else's book. I happen to think that that a couple of the things you mentioned earlier are part of that solution. So and what did I, what did I mention? Oh, the um, uh, getting rid of the filibuster, um, getting rid of the Senate, if that's even possible, I think would do an awful lot to make Congress a lot more effective. I I would just like to uh, take this time to plug. um, Oh, God. 10 percent less democracy. Yes. Garrett Jones's book, 10 (laughs) percent less democracy. Uh, which uh, argues yeah, that it, it, extending the terms of Congress people uh, would uh, go quite a long way to fixing things because without the need to constantly be campaigning, people could actually, you know, do work. Um, 
Yeah. But, so uh, one of yeah. the one of the contrarian opinions I, I've held for a long time is that one C-SPAN needs to be abolished. Um, there should not be cameras and legislative processes, and we should allow people as much access to backroom dealing, <laughs> hand hand uh, hand handshakes and backslapping as possible. And we should also extend the amount of time that every House member is able to serve without running for re-election. I would be open to extending the terms of senators as well. I also want them to all have free housing <laughs> in Washington, D.C. and increase their pay. I want like being a lawmaker to be not just a thing that you can do for a living, but do be a thing where you can zero in on the art of governing and public service and building expertise. And maybe that's just sort of the credentialist in my bones. Um, but I, I do sort of hold a, a transgressive belief towards the idea that the more democracy we have in every form makes things better. That's not true at all. Um, we need some decisiveness, just a little bit. <laughs> and we need, we need some expertise. And we don't have either. Um, ah, so we give emergency powers to the emperor is what you're saying. <laughs> the <laughs> chancellor. Ooh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, the chancellor, not the emperor yet. Yeah, so so, do, I, so are there, there any is, things? Sorry, um, we have thirteen minutes left, and uh, there is something else I'd like to uh, ask Stephen about uh, regarding balance as a virtue. Um, so, if you guys want to continue this conversation, I don't want to uh, like force us to go on to something else, but there is something else I'd like to ask. No, go ahead. Okay, uh, so. Yeah, I'll so, just say uh, I actually agree with almost that entire take. Yeah. Um, well, my, and I, I agree with a lot of what it says in 10% uh, less democracy. Okay. I was hoping my question would be a quick one. Are is there anything that um, is happening right now that people could throw some support behind to make those things happen? Get Congress to actually have more power and do more things? Mm, you're talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, there's well, there's, a, there's a bunch of book. organizations out there. You can <laughs> you can buy my book. It will help to fix the world. <laughs> um, okay. Now you can. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there there are great organizations that do work to try to um, provide you know term limits for for different sorts of offices, and there are organizations that try to improve civic health. But uh, I'm not I'm not your go to source for that. Okay. Um, my answer is no. There isn't. Uh, my answer is I'm not positive, but I believe the Open Philanthropy Project is uh, funding some nonprofits in that space. Uh, so anyway, uh, my other question about balance is uh, I think it's best illustrated with an example. Uh, and so I'm going to give you two, one pretty trite and the other uh, slightly more serious. So if you're approaching a stoplight, and it turns yellow. There's, uh, like, if you're far enough away, you need to slow down and stop. If you're close enough to it, you need, you're going too fast with too much inertia to fully come to a stop. Mm -hmm. uh, so you need to speed up. Uh, and then there's a zone in the middle where you're not always sure. And depending on how long the light takes to change, it could be the case that either speeding up or slowing down will keep you safe in the intersection. But if you try to, uh, to use the snarkiest possible phrasing, balance the two, you end up coming to a stop right in the middle of the intersection. 
Uh, and my more serious example is if you look at the situation in Afghanistan, you could imagine one uh, U.S. foreign policy where we were very pacific after 9-11. We just say, like, they went low, we're going to go high, um, we're not going to invade, we're not going to even drop bombs, we're just going to rebuild better and stronger than before and be like the America who can be a good example to the rest of the world. Or we could have like gone in with a full World War II style uh, smash everything and then have a Marshall plan to rebuild it from the ashes. And it looks to me like the first example like maybe you would still have the Taliban in power, but we at least wouldn't have thrown away the trillions of dollars and I want to say hundreds of thousands of American uh-huh. lives, though I don't have the exact number in front of me right now. And if we'd gone with a yes. second, then at least we would have thrown away the blood and treasure, but at least we would know for sure that the Taliban wouldn't be in power. And it seems to me that... Uh, Part of the reason why we're in this situation is that there were these competing interests, the pacifists and the uh, hawks, and in trying to, uh, again, to be maximally snarky, balance those two interests has led to the mess we're currently in, uh, where we have thrown away the blood and treasure, and also the Taliban still in power. So, uh, my question is, uh, there are clearly some instances, like in the federalism case, where balance is desirable, uh, but there also definitely seem like there are other cases where you have multiple options, and committing to any of them would be better than trying to be wishy-washy and uh, have your cake and eat it, too. Correct. Uh, So... Is this just uh is this just a matter of like virtues in Star Wars being like all other virtues where the really hard problem is knowing when the virtue is important and when it's not? Or is there something Star Wars has to tell us not about balance, but about well, balancing balance you... and imbalance balancedly? <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I don't know how I'm supposed to keep up with all that, but I would okay, say fair. you editorialized and you conflated balance with wishy-washiness. I would call balance harmony. So those are two very different concepts. You should absolutely be decisive and make clear decisions with cost-benefit analysis and go forward with one or the other, particularly when it comes to foreign policy. We embraced a utopian ideal going into the Middle East and particularly Afghanistan, where we were going to go in there, kill some bad guys, make them go away, which was just like a completely fantastical idea, even though they had local support in droves, and then rebuild a system of government in a place of the world where they do not value the ideas that would underpin said government. It was completely fantastical. One of the most realist things that I have ever seen happen in my life has been the withdrawal this past month on time. We're speaking on August 31st when the <laughs> when the withdrawal was set. I don't know about you, but I am freaking stunned that we actually did it. 
I, right? I am stunned that I'm stunned that that Joe Biden didn't cave to all of the pressures that he must have been facing behind the scenes to engage in more utopian politics and situations in Afghanistan to make it perfect. There was so no such thing as a perfect exit, but we actually did it. We left, and there's going to be consequences to that. But God damn it, it was a good decision to go forward with it, even if it was stubbornness that got you there. I am on the record as having been skeptical that it would happen uh, like three months ago. So, yes. So, in the Star Wars framework, like, what lessons do you think Star Wars can give us about when we should seek balance or harmony or whatever versus when we should, like, stick to our guns, be principled, uh, and not uh, make compromise with sin, so to speak? Hmm. That's a tough question. I don't have a perfect answer for you, but my mind goes to Luke on the island in Octo or on Octo when he has sort of failed as a Jedi master. He has tried to create a new Jedi order, had them all wiped out by one of his students, Ben Solo. And basically what he has tried to do is take himself as a as a chess piece off the board because he sort of believes that no matter what sort of presence he engages in in the galaxy it's going to always have an equal or opposite reaction which causes devastation harm and the rise of evil right like darkness rises and light to meet it that's sort of one of the the mantras of the last jedi put forward by snoke and it's not a lie it's true but one of the moral decisions that we have to make, no matter what, is that there will always be and must always be forces of equal light and equal dark, and we need to stand up and face those fights. We can't just cower and hide on an island and say, well, if we get involved, then it's going to uh, create some sort of blowback. Therefore, we should do nothing. That's how darkness runs the galaxy. That's how darkness steamrolls all of life as it exists. You have to take up certain fights. The trick is, of course, knowing which fights are the ones to take up and which ones are the dark side drawing you into a trap based on your insecurities, your fears, your passions. That's a really tough call. Um, Star Wars and I cannot tell you which ones those are, but they're asking you to think about what those things are, be aware of them, and consider at all times you might be getting tricked by your by your emotions, and you need to try to distinguish the two. I got a practical question. You said earlier that you thought things were going to be coming to a head. Would you suggest that like the podcast listeners and moisture farmers in the middle stock up on blasters and rations? Uh, or is there something else we should be doing to prepare for this coming head thing? <laughs> uh, I'm a scout. I believe in being prepared. And I believe you should always have rations in your basement, as well as two gold bars and a fully loaded assault rifle. Um, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I always try to stay prepared for certain contingencies. Uh, I do. Um, I mean, I don't know. Are you asking a serious question about like... Yeah, seriously, prepping? like... Yeah. What like what do we? How scared do we need to be? And should we be prepared just in case? Well, uh, democracy and civilization are and temporary. Fear leads to anger. And I was going to say anger leads to hate, and hate is the path to the dark side. I mean, I guess my my answer to your question is a question: Is do you believe that civilization is permanent? 
Wow, that's a tough question. <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I, I certainly don't. I, I'm a dystopian. Um, I'm I'm a the kind of person who, when I envision the future, I envision desolate wastelands and people living in tunnels underneath the ground. <laughs> you know, that's I, I I I respect and I understand the human progress point of view that you know libertarians and the Cato Institute are always trying to trick us into that we're going to be living in skyscrapers one day and it's all going to be beautiful because infant mortality has gone down and wealth creation is always, always abundant and growing. But I sort of believe that there's going to be a bottoming out. I believe there's going to be a, a going backwards. I don't know what will be or why, but uh, I will not be surprised when that day comes. So I, uh, I just sort of always am mentally and spiritually prepared for when this world we live in does not exist. I think while there have certainly been many civilizational collapses in the past, like there was always other places where civilization continued on. And as, as a Mm -hmm. phenomenon spread across the species, it uh, soldiered on, I think maybe with how much globalization we have now and how things are almost one big community, that might be an issue, but that can also be solved by taking the star Wars example and colonizing other planets. So we can have great big spaces uh, separating civilizations again. Colonization, it's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Always has been. So uh, what we have learned from this podcast is that Stephen is in favor of cancel culture and colonialism. How the force can fix the British Empire. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is right. also the name of his book. <laughs> <laughs> We've uh, we've been having a lot of fun in the house coming up with how the force can fix insert word. How so, the force uh, can fix I'm uh, I'm going to get that trademark so. Well, sounds like the force fixed OnlyFans just a few days ago, so that was nice. <laughs> force can fix sex work. Way to go, force. <laughs> cool. Well, uh that All is right. uh I 9 have... o'clock. do we uh, want to do quick Bantha fodder and or troop deployment or just call it there? I have to wrap for my fatherly duties. So All right. if we could do the offboarding part, that would be good. Okay. Then uh All right. Well that's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Um, and that was Steven from the Beltway Banthas. We'll have a link to his podcast uh on our in our show notes and also to his book. Can you give us the plug again? Yeah, my book is called How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. That's on sale now. Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, IndieBound, wherever you might get your books. Comes out on October 26th, but you should go ahead and put in an order now, and it will also have an audiobook version as well. Fantastic. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.